If you're new here with us, uh, welcome especially to you. My name is Matt, and uh, it's a joy to have you here this, this Christmas Eve. Um, our goal in these kinds of services is really to remember and celebrate the story of Christmas. Uh, we've heard it read already from our fantastic readers. Uh, we've heard it sung. We've, we've sung many of the parts of the story of Christmas. Uh, but we also want to spend some time thinking about the meaning uh, behind what we've heard and what we've sung. And so that's, that's what we're going to do right now is to spend a little bit of time uh, kind of reflecting on the, the deeper meanings of what actually we are talking about. And uh, to do that, kind of as a way into that, I would like to think a little bit about uh, Christmas music. Uh, my observation is that uh, pretty much every band, every, every solo act, every duo, a- any, any band that's been a band for like a calendar year at least, uh, puts out a Christmas album. That's, that's my impression. As I think about all of the Christmas albums that are out there, I did a little bit of research. Uh, the top 25 Christmas albums, according to Rolling Stone magazine, uh, contained uh, a lot of obvious uh, bands or people we would think, like Bing Crosby, right, of course, classic. Uh, Elvis was on there, Frank Sinatra, Motown Christmas, right? These are ones that we would expect, but there were some ones that I did not expect. For example, James Brown put out three Christmas albums. I don't know why he needed three, but he just kept pumping them out. Bob Dylan has a Christmas album, uh, Willie Nelson, Johnny Cash, the Beach Boys, of course, and on the list, um, biggest surprise was Weezer has a Christmas album that I didn't, I didn't associate them with Christmas. So, so why is it that all of these bands keep putting out Christmas albums? I think some of it's obvious. Uh, we, we love Christmas music. We want more of it. We have whole radio stations devoted to Christmas music, and so there's an appetite for it. But probably the biggest reason is uh, financial, right? Economic. Uh, we, we want to buy the Christmas albums. And in fact, if you manage to write a hit song, you will be set for the rest of your life. You just need to ask Mariah Carey, right? She, she doesn't have an album on any of the top 25 lists that I could find, but her song, All I Want for Christmas Is You, is one of the top-selling Christmas songs. And uh, the estimate is that she makes about $2 million a year just off of that one song. And since 1994, that means she's made about $60 million just for hitting, writing that song. So I... I think we should maybe try. I think maybe this afternoon <laughs> it's worth just giving it, giving it a go. But, <clears throat> but here's what I want to point out. There's a big difference, though, in spite of all the popularity. There's a big difference between a hit Christmas song and a true Christmas carol. Uh, okay, the, the fine, part of it is financial, like you don't really make any money off of Christmas carols. They're in the public domain. Uh, but the lyrics are the thing that are the biggest difference, I think. Uh, it's great that all Mariah Carey wants for Christmas is you or me or someone that feels good. Um, the Charlie Brown Christmas music comes on the radio and we feel good about that, feel kind of warm and tingly. But true carols are full of uh, meaning and significance that goes much deeper than just a festive spirit, than just being home for the holidays, than even a white Christmas. Uh, you may have noticed that we have put some music notes on our back wall here. Um, that's because... Uh, we are, uh, our Christmas sermon series was called From Angels We Have Heard. It's sort of a, an allusion to the Christmas carol, From Angels We Have Heard on High. Now, this uh, carol is interesting because uh, it goes back to the 1700s, but no one actually knows who wrote it. It's just one of those songs that's been around forever. We all know the, the words, but we don't actually know who authored it. 
And the chorus is unique because uh, it's in Latin. Uh, I won't sing it, but the gl- glor- you know, Gloria in excelsis Deo, that, that line uh, in English means glory to God in the highest, which is what the angels uh, say when they come to visit the shepherds. It's part of the scene that we already heard read. And that's really what the song is all about. The first verse, you probably know it already by heart, but I'll read it to you. Angels we have heard on high, sweetly singing o'er the plains, and the mountains in reply echoing their joyous strains. It's, it's depicting what's going on there in the book of Luke. Uh, this, this passage here, I'm going to read it to you. Luke 2.8, and in the same region, there were shepherds out in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, And the glory of the Lord shone around them, for they were filled with great fear. And the angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest. And on earth, peace among those with whom he is pleased. These are the kind of words that set carols and hymns apart from hit Christmas songs, from pop songs. It's it's not just the poetry, it's not just the melody, it's the weight and significance of the words that makes all the difference. In fact, uh, verse 14 from that passage is, is the chorus, glory to God in the highest, And I want to spend a little bit of time thinking about these words because they are central to the story of Christmas. In fact, these words give an answer to a problem that most of us don't even know that we have. And I would describe it as a glory problem, a problem that we all have with with glory. So that's what we're going to talk about. What is glory? What is this problem that I say that we have? And how does the Christmas story help? And we're going to get to the bottom of it in, in three points. So here's the first one. We all need to live for some kind of glory. Some kind of glory. Now, the word glory can mean a few different things. We don't, we don't use it that much when we talk to each other in normal daily life. But we kind of have a sense of what it means. It can mean uh, beauty or splendor, like the glory of a sunset. It, it can mean uh, magnificence, like the glory of the Grand Canyon, you know, awe-inspiring, that kind of thing. But it can also mean honor, like the glory of a victory in battle. And that one, I think, gets kind of closer to how we use glory in the way that we talk to each other because it's really having to do with honor and purpose. They kind of go together. So if you fight for the glory of victory or if you play for the glory of winning, you have an objective. You're putting all of your energy and effort into accomplishing something worthwhile. And that is how glory functions in our lives because whether we realize it or not, all of us need to have something that we are living for, some sort of glory that that is the focus, the passion, the source of joy in our lives. Now, for some of us, uh, this this is what we do, like our job. It it brings us this sense of of joy, whatever that might be, a career path that you've chosen. Uh, It's something maybe that you're building or creating or serving people or providing some service, and you get out of the bed in the morning, you're you're just happy to be doing the job that you have. Glad for the opportunity to do this. It brings you a sense of significance and purpose in life, and that, that's fantastic. For others of us, the, the nine to five is not really the thing that we would say is like the glory of our lives. It's just it's a job that gives us money, which we need, but really it's something else. Some creative endeavor, 
uh, some hobby, some other passion, maybe it's serving the people or life, whatever it is, there is something that when we wake up, the kind of the focus of our lives, it's not our work, but it, it's something else. That's also fantastic. But there are some of us for whom the, there, there isn't really that purpose. Maybe there's been seasons of our lives and we've gone through a, you know, a time where like I, I get up out of bed in the morning, I don't really have a sense of drive, a sense of joy, a sense of significance, and it's partly because I'm not really sure what my life is, is all about. And that's a problem for a human being because human beings are not like the other creatures in the world. Okay, we're not like anteaters, we're not like aardvarks. Okay, they don't need some higher purpose in their life to eat ants or to do whatever aardvarks do. I didn't look it up. I don't know what they do. They aard, they bark, there's something. We don't, they don't need that. They don't have a midlife crisis or existential angst. They just, they're designed to simply do the things that they do. They don't think about it. But human beings, we're different. We need some sense of higher purpose. That's the glory of our lives. Now, I was reminded of this uh, when I was watching an episode a little while ago of this show called Chef's Table. Have you seen that show? It's like this uh, documentary of all these famous chefs around the world. It's really interesting if you like food. Uh, and this episode was about this uh, restaurant in Spain. These three brothers ran this restaurant. I think it was called El Celer de Roca. Their last name was de Roca. I can't remember. But it was interesting because even though the, the show was about the three brothers, the, the youngest brother was, was had a kind of a captivating story. Uh, the older two were actually quite a bit older. They started the restaurant. This is like a three Michelin star, like world-class restaurant. People come from all over the world to this restaurant. One of the brothers, the older brothers, in charge of the kitchen. He's the head chef. The other one is in charge of the front of house. But the youngest brother, Jordy, you know, he didn't really have a place. And a lot of the stories they told in his early 20s, like many people in their early 20s, just didn't really have a sense of what he was supposed to do. Sometimes he would serve. Sometimes he'd work in the kitchen. He didn't really want to just be working at his brother's restaurant. He was kind of aimless, directionless. He would come late, leave early. He did not have a purpose in his life. So they kept trying to find a place for him, and they sent him to the pastry chefs. They said, maybe, you, maybe you'll like it there. And he did, he did kind of like it there, found it interesting. But everything shifted when the head pastry chef got injured. Uh, it wasn't like a pastry in injury. <laughs> he wasn't like on the job. It was something else. He couldn't come in to work. It wasn't like a Cuisinart. His hand got stuck. Nothing like that. He couldn't come into work, and so they said to Jordy, look, you're going to have to be in charge. You have to make all the pastries, all these fancy kind of desserts, and so he started to do that. Day after day, week after week, this, this guy couldn't come back for months, and after a little while, Jordy said, you know, if I'm going to be here for a while, I should probably get some more training, uh, follow some of my interests. So he, he, took, he took a course, I didn't know you could do this, in ice cream. Took a course in ice cream, sounds like a pretty good course. And uh, he had an epiphany during the course. They were, they were training the chefs on how to handle the ice cream. So it's very important that you seal the ice cream because the aromas from the other foods in the freezer are going to affect the flavor of the ice cream. So you have to have it air, airtight. But for Jordy, he said, he, he began to think the other way. He said, if, if aromas can affect the flavor of ice cream, what if I want to change the flavor? So he went back to the kitchen. He started experimenting. As he made ice cream, he got a cigar. And he, and he smoked the cigar and blew the, the smoke into the ice cream. And, and sure enough, it absorbed all that smoky flavor. And so when they tasted it, it tasted like smoke. And so what he did is he, is he made this dark chocolate uh, cigar and filled it with smoke-favored ice cream. When his brothers tasted it, their minds were blown. 
They're like, I've never tasted anything like this before. This is amazing. And at that moment, Jordy said, I knew what my life was about. I knew what I was going to live for. I was going to be a pastry chef, and he is. He's the head pastry chef. People come from all over the world. It's, it's now the purpose of his life, the glory of his life. This is what we need. Every person, something that we are living for. But therein lies the problem. Because the things that we have to choose from are, are only the glories of this world, and, that, and there's a problem with that. And it's our second point. That the world's glory, it always fades. And here's what I mean by that. By fade, I mean there are things in this world that, that have a tendency to appear substantial, but eventually they fall apart. They, they disappoint us. Now, there's some things that we know are going to do that. There's many things in life that we know are just not, that they're not a good thing to live for, uh, get-rich-quick schemes, not good to build your life on that, Ponzi schemes, pyramid schemes, any scheme is not... <laughs> Usually a good thing, it's, it's gonna, the bottom's going to fall out, you're going to be bankrupt, your, your life. There's lots of things like that, not just in finance, but in a relationship, even in, in career. But even legitimate sources of life purpose, they don't actually fill our lives with the glory that we need. And we, we can see this. We can look around us and see people who, who should have, according to the world, everything that they need, a, a stability of life, and yet they don't. We know there are very, very wealthy people or on antidepressants. Despite their wealth, despite accumulating everything that should give them a sense of solidity in life, for whatever reason, they're still struggling. We know there's very famous people who have still an instability in life and relationships. We know that for us, living in the wealthiest, one of the wealthiest countries in the world, we still struggle to have a sense of peace with what we have and who we are. And even if we even if we can't see this just by looking around, uh, there's a book in the Bible that makes this very, very clear. Uh, there's a man uh, thousands of years ago, his name is King Solomon. Well, his name wasn't King. His name was Solomon. He was a king, king of Israel. He was a very wealthy man at the time, very uh, important man, very wise man. And he tried to live his life by delving into all of the glories of the world, all the things that the world had to offer. And he didn't just do this for like a month or a year. He did this for decades, decades and decades, using all the power and wealth that he had at his command, trying to, to get satisfaction out of the things of the world. And at the end of his life, when he was an old man, he wrote a book called Ecclesiastes. And basically the whole point of the book was how all of these things end up disappointing us. And, and he had a word that he used to describe basically the glories of the world, which was vanity. It's all vanity, he said. Worthless, empty, pointless, and in case you think, you know, maybe Solomon didn't actually try everything, maybe he wasn't thorough enough, in the book, uh, chapter after chapter chronicles the things that he looked to. Uh, Self-indulgence. He said, I searched with my heart how to cheer my body with wine, with good food. He built houses, planted vineyards. He had great possessions. He himself became a great man, a wise man. He wrote thousands of Proverbs that we still quote to this day. That was the wisdom that God had given him. Kings and queens would come from afar. Every, every kind of pleasure you could imagine, he indulged in it completely. Not just the food and wine, but also in relationship, in women. He had hundreds, thousands of wives, concubines. Every physical pleasure that you could imagine, he delved into completely. And at the end of the day, he said this. This is what we find in Ecclesiastes 2.11. All was vanity. It was worthless, pointless. It faded, striving after wind, and there was nothing to be gained under the sun 
Why? Because the, the pleasure didn't last. Because even the wealth that he acquired, he said, I'm just going to die. Some other fool is going to take it. They're going to spend my money. But here's the real value of what King Solomon was able to do. He shows us that it isn't just the bad, frivolous things that disappoint us in life. It's the good things. Because most of what he lived for, they were good things. Wisdom, that's a good thing. Hard work is a good thing. Building houses is a good thing. Thousands of wives is not really a good thing. We can't put that in that category. But most of the things that Solomon lived for, they, they would be things that we would say, yeah, that's good. That's not a Ponzi scheme. That's not a pyramid scheme. That's something that seems like it would be substantial. And yet what he shows us is it's not, it's not glorious enough. It fades. Or we fade. And we can't continue to enjoy it. This is the glory problem that every human being has. That the things in our lives that seem good, they may be good right now, they, they don't last. Money is gone quicker than we think. Our health eventually falters. Even if we do make it to our, our 90th, 100th, 110th birthday, it, it means probably that we've had to bury all of the people that are closest to us and that we, we will be next. The glory of the world, no matter how brightly it shines in the moment, it always fades eventually. And so we're left with the question, well, what, what do we do? Living without a purpose doesn't, doesn't work. Living for something in the world only works for a little while. What glory is there that we can live for that won't disappoint? And King Solomon has an answer. After living for all those decades, for all of those earthly things, here, here is his answer. Chapter 12, verse 13, he says, The end of the matter, all has been heard. Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. Solomon says that the issue is we need to look higher, higher than the things of this world to God himself. He is the one that we need to live for and obey, and then we will be satisfied, truly satisfied for, for all time. Now you might say, well, I mean, of course the Bible's going to say that. So the Bible's about God, of course. It's what Sunday school, we know the answer. It's going to be God is going to be the answer. But this actually has a beautiful logic to it. See, the higher the earthly purpose, the more satisfaction we tend to get out of life. Like we call certain jobs dead-end jobs for a reason, right? They're, they're jobs that we do for the moment. We, we need to pay off a student loan. We need to, whatever, work our way through school. They're, but they're not jobs that really have a future in it. They're not jobs that really bring a sense of satisfaction and joy in life. But if there are other things that we can give our time and attention to, maybe a career, maybe another job, maybe a hobby, those are the things that we say, yeah, that, that's real joy there. That's real passion and significance because it's a, it's a higher level of glory that comes with this higher level of activity. And so what Solomon is saying, look, we'll just keep going up. Go up to the top. If you put God himself at the center of your life and live for his glory, then you will be fully satisfied. Not just now, but for forever. Because life with God doesn't end at the grave. Now, we might not realize this at first, but this is what the story of Christmas is actually showing us. This is what we see in, in the description of the scene uh, with Mary and Joseph and Jesus. And that's because all our expectations for glory are flipped on their head. See, when it comes to significant people, like important people in the world, uh, they always have kind of an aura about them. Uh, you, you might call it a glory in a sense, meaning 
when someone significant, important arrives somewhere, they usually do it in a certain way. They have a certain kind of car. When they arrive, people treat them a certain way. There's a sense of deference, right? A sense of, sense of respect, attention. All of these things come along with people who are famous or have some sense of power or wealth or whatever it may be. I saw this a few weeks ago. Uh, a few of my kids and I were going to the barber shop uh, to get their hair cut, and we walked in the door, and one of my sons is like, Dad, that's Alfonso Davies. Uh, I'm like, well, that's not Alfonso Davies. Like, it was, there was Alfonso Davies getting his hair cut. Famous Canadian soccer star, World Cup. And, and what I realized, once I kind of looked around, is that everyone was aware that Alfonso Davies was there in the barber shop. You could see, it was like a gravitational pull. Everyone was kind of looking, kind of talking. Is he there? Is that him yet? Whispering, looking, what's he doing? How's he getting his hair cut? They want to see everything. When he stood up, everyone kind of flocked over, right? Not... Not too much, just, hey, would you mind? She was really gracious. Got my picture, t- I mean, I got the kid's picture taken with him. This is, this is what happens when someone is important. There's this kind of aura of glory around them. When he left, right, he left in a Lincoln SUV town car. I mean, that's what's someone important. When he arrived the same way, the confusing thing is that in our story, if we look and see what the angels are saying, what the word of God is saying, Jesus is the most significant individual ever to have walked the earth. He's got all sorts of names, the Messiah, King of Kings, Lord of Lords, the Savior, Emmanuel, God with us, and yet, and yet there's no glory, no earthly glory in the scene. You have a baby born in a, in a dirty manger, surrounded by stinking animals. You have illiterate backwater shepherds come to attend him in this no-place town to dirt poor mother and father. There's there's no power, no majesty, nothing that the earth would look to and say, oh, that's someone important. Why is that? It's because God is teaching us something about glory that means something. What he's teaching us is that this, this child is not here for the glory of the world. It's not about that. This child is about the glory of God. In fact, he is the glory of God. That's what the angels tell us. They come to announce what no one else in the region seems to understand, because no one's looking at Bethlehem, even though there's prophecies about it, no one's going there, there's nothing there. Yet the angels are proclaiming, this is glory to God in the highest, this child. This is our third point, okay? The highest glory is found in Jesus. That's what the angels are saying. Why is that? It's because Jesus didn't come just to live as a baby. He came to die as a man. He came to bring the answer to our problem of glory. See, the real reason that everything falls apart in our lives is because human beings from the time of Eden have turned our back on God. We haven't haven't done the thing that Solomon says we should do. He says we should obey God, fulfill his commands. We haven't haven't done that. We don't want to obey God. We We don't want to fulfill his commands. We have, in the root of our heart, a rebellious nature that the Bible calls sin, which means that each one of us, on our own, of our own sort of devices, we will, we will turn our backs and go our own way. And that brings problems to everything. You, you see the effects of this in the news. Every night you can see it. You can see what happens when the people of the world live for the glory of lesser things, live for ourselves, don't honor the Lord. You see the, you see the conflict. You see the, the fractured relationships. You see the violence. You see the poverty. You see people not living for the one who made them. This sin brings consequences for for us now in all those things I described, but also for us later. Eternal consequences because we have a perfect judge, the God of heaven and earth, and we are under 
the justice that comes from a righteous judge. Which is why the angels are super excited. Like, this is why this scene, they are just bursting with joy. Look at verse 10. They come and they say, fear not. For behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. See, they know he didn't just come to live as a little child. He came to die and then to rise again on the cross. That's why there, even though there's no glory in the scene, the angels are bringing the glory. They're announcing, no, this is a glorious event. Why? Because all of this work of Jesus, that the being born as a human being, living perfectly, going to the cross, it solves the problem of sin. And it solves the problem of glory. Because when we have faith in Jesus... All our sins are wiped away, and as he lived, we have the hope of life as well. It's, it's the redeeming, loving character of God put on full display. That's, that's why Jesus is the highest glory of God, because he fully magnifies who God actually is. Right? Many people might have some sense of God, that there is someone out there, a being who created the world perhaps, who's kind of in charge in some way, but Jesus makes crystal clear that he is not just sovereign. He's not just a king. He's not just in charge. He didn't just make the world. He's redeeming the world. He loves each of us in spite of the fact that we've turned our backs on him. And so the love, the mercy, the grace, and the power of God is all fully displayed in Jesus. He is the highest glory of the God of heaven and earth. And not only that, he invites us to receive his salvation and to replace the fading glory of our lives, whatever that is, whatever thing right now it is that's driving us to replace that with the eternal glory that is found in him. See, this is why not just one angel showed up on that night in Bethlehem, but, but a multitude, that's what it says in verse 13, a multitude, which, which means like hundreds, thousands of angels. All the angels probably came because they wanted to behold what was happening, this amazing, glorious event, and then they proclaimed what no one really was clear about, Glory to God in the highest. He's here. This is, this is what you've been waiting for. The highest glory in the lowliest form. To make sure we know what this is really about. It's not about our glory. It's not about the glory of the world. It's, it's about the glory that we really need. The glory that comes from God himself. So here's my question. To, to wrap up our time together. What kind of glory are you living for? As you get up and out of bed in the morning, as you think about your life, the thing that brings you satisfaction and joy, what is it? And as you look to the future, what's going to happen to that thing? Is it going to fade? Is it going to end? Or will it save you? Will it actually carry you into eternity? See, this is, this is what true Christmas carols are all about. This is the message of Christmas that we need to be reminded of each year. And, and to end our time together, we are going to sing about this again. We're going to actually sing uh, the carol, Angels We Have Heard on High. And as we do, I would invite you to consider what it is that we're singing. This message of hope, this message of glory, it isn't, it isn't just meant to be something that we sing. It's meant to be something that we receive, something that we live. Now, a couple of instructions. We are going to sing the song. Uh, our custom is to, to sing a kind of a candlelit song for our last song. 
Hopefully you have a candle. If not, uh, some people will come in and give you some. Parents, these are real candles. These are not LED lights. So if you're going to give them to your children, that's fine. But let's not light each other on fire. That would be great. Uh, so I'm going to, uh, to pray for us. And then we're going to light the candle from the Advent candle. And we're going to pass it uh, all the way back and end our time together. So join with me in prayer if you would. And then we'll sing together. Lord Jesus, thank you. Thank you for... The fact that you came, thank you for the fact that you demonstrated, made so clear to us that the God of heaven and earth not only made us, but loves us, redeems us through your work on the cross, through the fact that you were born in the, in the form of a human being. I pray, I pray that each one here would have a greater sense of who you are, whether we've walked with you for many, many years, whether we aren't really a person of faith. Would you help us to see more clearly our need for a glory, glory that lasts and the fact that you are truly the glory of God. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.